Hello, everyone, and welcome to season one, episode two of Living Leadership, coming at you from the School of Leadership Studies at Gonzaga University. I'm your host, Tara Weir, and I am so excited to get our first season going. So Living Leadership consists of eight webinars, followed by eight conversational podcast episodes on topics surrounding community and workplace wellness. We are leaning in to what you need in and out of the workplace and how employers can support you in that. I am so thrilled to be joined today by our two guests, Jill Yashinsky-Wortman and Ariel McClare. If you were able to tune into our live webinar on November 17th, you may have already had a chance to hear from Jill and Ariel, but I will quickly reintroduce them for our topic today, how to lead during crisis and how to support leaders. We'll start with Jill, and Jill is the owner of Momentum Coaching and Consulting, LLC. She has a Master's of Arts in Organizational Leadership from Gonzaga and is a certified professional coactive coach and an International Coaching Federation Associate Certified Coach. Prior to becoming a coach, Jill worked in a variety of roles at Gonzaga in student support and crisis management at Gonzaga. During almost 15 years in that in those roles, she participated and led crisis response in many situations, including inclement weather situations, emergency on-call roles, infectious disease exposure, sexual assault, and deaths of students. These were some of the hardest and most rewarding professional experiences. In her current life as a coach, Jill loves helping people and organizations draw on positive experiences to create exciting and meaningful transformation. Ariel McClare is the owner and founder of Digital Milk, a consulting and brand marketing firm. She is a passionate industrial and organizational psychologist who pushes herself and others to promote a positive, ethical, and results-driven workplace. Ariel has performed and streamlined in many sectors of business, ranging from hospitality to healthcare. Her education background and self-drive work together to give organizations both universal guidance and vertical-specific know-how. Ariel is a member of the Society for Human Resource Management, the Society for Industrial and Organizational Psychology, and the American Psychological Association. In her spare time, Ariel volunteers in the community, loves to travel and experience other cultures, cares for her three furry dog friends, and spends time learning about plants and wildlife. Also joining us today is Living Leadership webinar and podcast producer, Emily Clay. So you might hear from Emily as well in this conversation.
All right. So let's get going. First of all, I want to say that conversation was so awesome and so informative. I was taking notes like a crazy woman. um, And I know that there's so much in there that I learned from and that inspired me. So it was really a pleasure to hear from both of you. And I say, let's dig deeper into our topic here today. All right. All right. So the first thing that I really want to ask, and I think I'll, um, I'll start with you, Jill, as you had mentioned the phases of crisis. And one of the things that I personally have been really struggling with is this like ongoing, you know, like you said, there was kind of like stops and starts, but it's like seemingly never ending this pandemic. Um, And, you know, I know you had mentioned to such a great point that different people, different circumstances, different economic, you know, backgrounds, that kind of thing. We have, you know, different needs, of course, as different people. I'm just wondering what general suggestion, um, would you give on how we can manage this seemingly never ending pandemic? Yeah, they actually have coined a phrase for it called pandemic pandemic flux syndrome. It's not, you know, a diagnostic oh. tool, but this idea that we've just been in this constant flux back and forth. Um, I think it was Amy Cuddy has done a lot of work with that. And, and really a couple of the things that she kind of recommended is one, remembering that we really are more resilient than we feel and that we will get through to the other side of this, that mm-hmm. it is coming and that every day is a little bit closer to that. Um, and I think that's hard, right? Because there's still not that different find end. So I think it is that moment of being able to say, here are the things that I'm still struggling with about this. Here's the underlying emotion and what's important about that motion emotion. But then also to be able to say, here's how I'm choosing to go forward. Here are the good things I've found. Here are the, the new norms that I've found for myself that I want to continue with. Um, and being able to take those steps. I think the thing that you know, has been interesting is I think each of us have emerged from this in a different way. So it's Mm. what, how do, what level of risk are we comfortable with now? Right. So I was having a conversation with a colleague recently about Thanksgiving and she's like, wow, well, some people want to do this for Thanksgiving, but others don't want to do this. And, and so I think it's also being clear about these are the, the, the perceived personal risks that I'm willing to take right now. Mm. And also still knowing which ones you aren't and being okay with that, right? Part of this is holding the things that are important to us as we go forward. So it might be, I, I'm not super comfortable yet being in a, in a full house for Thanksgiving. So I'm going to choose to do this and this is my comfort level. So I think it is knowing that we are resilient. We are every single day, we are getting closer to the end of this and acknowledging that there still are a lot of emotions there and being real with those and being okay with them and sticking to the things that are important to you. Because if you let those values and those things that are important be tread on, it's going to be so much harder. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's so true. My husband and I, we host an annual backgammon tournament. It's a family tradition for many, 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 many years on the Saturday after Thanksgiving. And that's been a tradition of ours that we've loved and we canceled it last year. And so this year we've been considering it and talking about it and really sitting with it. And we finally made the decision that we weren't comfortable having that many, cause it's a huge, wonderful, huge family. Yeah. So um, it was a decision we had to make, but it was one we had to come to together and then communicate it. And, you know, people really understood 
I just think it's going to make it even that much sweeter, you know, hopefully next year when we have it. Um, but I, I, re- I appreciate that um, sentiment on yeah. really honoring what you need. And I think what you just pointed out there, Tara, was really poignant because there is, we have to acknowledge what we're feeling, right? We can't, of course, there's some disappointment. Of yes. course, there's a little bit of grief of like last year when you canceled it, I'm sure it was like, oh my gosh, next year, this yes, is going to be awesome. Yeah. Right? So, <laughs> totally. I mean, it's like our human nature. So I think it's important, you know, I, I often, this is having a mom of a little kid, Daniel Tiger is brilliant, right? And he talks about, you know, you can feel two things at the same time. We can be really disappointed that this thing didn't happen while also holding, I am excited about when it is that much sweeter. So I think acknowledging that our emotions also don't exist in singulars, right? They often, there are more than one. There's an amazing tool out there um, called the wheel of emotions. And I love it. It's one of my favorites, right? To be able to say like, what's the emotion that I think I'm having? Is that really it? Or is it of, oh, actually, guess what? I thought it was this, but I actually think it's really this. And so being able to get really clear about what that is and why it's important um, and acknowledging that there can be lots of those. That's really, those are the skills and the internal skills that are going to help us do the external things as we move forward. And then as leaders too, right? Set being a model to really identifying what is the actual motion? How can I name it? And, and then encouraging other people um, and encouraging our teams, our employees, to, um, to do the same. Ariel, any thoughts about that question or, cause I have questions for you too, specifically. Yeah. You know, I think you both bring up some really good points. You know, we are living in this state of constant overwhelm, right? We're in this, this sense of, you know, the age of overwhelm and there's a really good book out there by Linda and I can't remember her last name right now. So I apologize, but I can give it to you guys in a bit, but it's really being able to recognize, okay, I'm overwhelmed, right? We're in this constant state of change and ambiguity, you know, when, when will this pandemic end? When will my overwhelm end? Because this adds so many different stressors in my life and just being able to recognize and understand okay, I am overwhelmed. What steps can I take to reduce that in order for me to be my best self, especially as a leader or, you know, a formal or non-formal leader? It's, it's so important to be able to check in with yourself and say, okay, what am I feeling? How do I reduce my stress or my risk of not being my best self today? And it, whether that's taking a day off or whether that's, you know, going to the spa like I would do or, mm-hmm. you know, whatever it is that you need to do. Um, but recognizing that in yourself and not pushing yourself over that point. I agree. I I also love what you said, Jill, about just being okay with having multiple emotions at once. I think that's so often we forget that that's, you know, when you have multiple emotions at once, obviously that can be very overwhelming, but also it's okay. Like that's totally an okay thing to feel. Yeah. I think it's actually normal. And like, nobody told us that earlier in life, right? (laughs) Yeah. yeah. It's a a multitude of things and that's the human condition, right? Like that's what makes us unique and human and sometimes messy and all of these other things. But that really is one of our really unique, beautiful attributes. Yeah. That helps connect us. Right. Cause we're all going through this and we, and we all have a mix of emotions. So yeah, I, I, really I want to just, there's one point that came up and I forgot to include it. I think the thing is that sometimes we also have labeled emotions, good or bad, right. Yeah, and emotions right. are neither emotions might feel, some feel more pleasant and some feel less pleasant, but emotions aren't good or bad inherently. And so I think the idea that I think it's Mark Brackett, it's a book called permission to feel. And it's this idea that 
yeah, we have these emotions that might not feel as pleasant, but it's recognizing like, oh, this is just an unpleasant feeling. It's not a bad emotion. I'm not inherently bad because I had that emotion or I'm feeling this way about it. It just isn't a pleasant thing for me to experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I really like that clarification. Love that. Yeah. And the emotional wheel, uh, the, the wheel of emotion, as you said, Jill, and then also as you were all brought up in the webinar was about, just, I love how you connected, you both connected back to the uh, last month's topic. So for you folks that are listening and haven't watched that webinar, definitely sign in <laughs> go to the website and look it up and um, watch that because there was so many great nuggets. And then for you both to connect, that was so helpful. The wheel, you know, the wellness wheel and considering what areas, where do I need to strengthen in this particular moment, in this crisis, where I am in this crisis, you know, after how long we've been going through it, what is it that I need right now? Which, which realm of that emotion, uh, not emotion, but in that wellness wheel, do I need to really strengthen and buff up? So I liked that a lot. Yeah. One of the other things that, well, I just want to say that I really liked that. Um, one of the things that I think you shared Jill was about finding someone to share, um, because to the answer of the question, when you're on the front line and your leaders aren't doing this, that's, that's, I think for me, that was the, when I felt the most powerless, um, when I was, you know, in, in companies in the workplace, because I wanted to foster that, but the leaders were definitely not creating that kind of environment. Um, and I do believe that there, you know, we can each influence in any moment we can be influencers and, we need support. You know, it's really helpful to have support. So I really appreciated that comment about finding someone, finding a liaison. And then I think it was you, Ariel, that said that there's actually people in the organization that are liaisons, like set for this purpose. Um, so I, I just thought that was, that was really awesome. Um, one, any, any burning thoughts about that before I go to my next question? I guess, you know, for me, just kind of to touch a little bit more on it, you know, it's like, you know, how do I know who's my liaison? You know, how am I supposed to find that person in the organization, especially if they're not talking to me? And a lot of times that could be an HR professional that could be, you know, someone you feel safe going to, but somebody that you know that you can talk to and and whether that could be, you know, the director of HR or maybe an HR generalist or whoever that is, find that point person in your organization that's willing to help you kind of cultivate that you know, climate and that way you can kind of change the culture. It should be coming from the top, but that's not always how it is. Right. So you have all these lower level employees that feel powerless and helpless and psychologically unsafe. And so, um, you know, find those point people and try to create that for yourself. And if your organization isn't willing to do that, you know, we kind of talked about what is that looking inside yourself and what is the next step you need to take? Right. That was to Jill's point. I think during the webinar was a great point of like, okay, sometimes it just gets to a point where you're like, "Mm, is this environment really going to help me thrive and be my best self? And if the answer is like, okay, enough is enough, then finding, finding another one. Um, I I do want to ask specifically starting with you, Ariel, about the um, clues, you know, like what clues, if I'm a leader or even a frontline person, what clues can I look for? Like, what are the top three things that tell me that, um, uh, that this psychological safety is missing? Um, so like, what are those clues? And then 
And then what are like, what would be the three top steps you recommend that I take? And, you know, it could be different for a leader and it could be different for a frontline person. Um, but what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, that's a really good question. It's a loaded question, right? Because there are so yeah. many different avenues you could go through here. And someone who is on the front lines, you know, in a meeting can recognize psychologically unsafe environments where the leader could recognize that as well. And so what do you do, right? Um, I think some of the top indicators of a psychologically unsafe environment are one, um, the only people in meetings who are talking are probably the executives or your boss. Um, that's a big red flag. Um, another giant red flag is nobody else is willing to speak up in those meetings. Okay, now we'd love to hear from you. Not one person says a word. Why? Because they're afraid of that retaliation. Or if I really told you what I thought, you know, I might not have a job tomorrow or I would have 10 more assignments on my desk because now I'm being punished or whatever, you know, that ends up being. Um, so I think those are the two really top big indicators. And then one is, you know, when people are avoiding having discussions about difficult conversations or hot topics, you know, mm. um, diversity, inclusion, things like that. If you don't want to talk about it, then how are you really supposed to get through the other side? And those are some things that, you know, let's be honest, we don't have a manual that says this is exactly what I need to do when I need to do it. Um, there are some, you know, very like oriented task-based things, but in, and usually in jobs, there is some ambiguity. And so we don't have the answers to everything. So let's open that environment and, and really get that feedback so that we can have the right answers to that. And we can foster that environment. So if you're avoiding those conversations, if nobody's talking in your meetings and you're the boss and you're the only one talking, it might be a psychologically unsafe environment. Um, and I think those are the top three things there. I think for fostering that environment and creating that change within your culture and your climate, one of the best things you can do is one, recognize, okay, you have a psychologically unsafe environment. We want to foster that. So we need to ask some questions. Let's put out a survey and really gain some feedback on what people are feeling and why they're feeling it. What is their perception? Because you really want to make the change, not based off of your perception, but based off of everybody's perception, what's best for the organization and what's best for the people that I'm leading. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and so gaining that feedback um, collecting some data there and then using that data to really put in a plan and involve other people into that plan and really hear out the individuals and make them feel recognized for their contribution. Thank you so much for taking that survey based off of your feedback. We're going to make some changes here and here because we recognize that your contributions are meaningful. Um, and then I think What's really important too, and one of the biggest things that I'll talk about in any sort of, um, you know, whether it's psychological safety or, or not, is training our leaders. Um, and I think that one of the biggest things that we can do is, you know, they always say leaders aren't born, they're created. Okay, well, let's create them, right? Let's provide them that training and those abilities and those skills um, to really foster those environments where people feel, you know, comfortable coming up and saying, hey, you know, I, I can't meet that deadline or, you know, there was a mistake that happened or, hey, I have a really amazing, innovative idea. And how do you how do you create that? And so I think that training those individuals, surveying and really understanding where the psychological safety isn't and then where can I make that change? That's awesome. I, I want to chime in really quick because I feel like such an important aspect to psychological safety in the workplace is that it 
truly extends so far beyond the workplace for so many people. Thinking personally, I feel like I've been in situations in different jobs where I've been feeling very psychologically safe and very unsafe in different roles that I've been in. And like, wow, my the benefits that it has given me outside of the workplace and how I feel and how I am able to live my life and, (laughs) you know, just like the mental, emotional stability in other aspects of my life is, it's crazy. Like it really, it it extends so far beyond the workplace for, for employees. I think it really does because, you know, let's say you have a psychologically safe environment that you're in, you know, that your contributions to the organization are meaningful because you know that you're being heard, you know that you're being, you know, valued, right? And so you can go home and then that can translate in so many other aspects of your life, especially in this time right now where the world is changing and we're in all this time of uncertainty and you know, the pandemic will never end, you know, so <laughs> and we have all this overwhelm, you know, it's so important to have that um, and it just creates so much meaning and in so many other aspects of your life. So I'm really glad you brought that up, Emily. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I want to chime in on something on that. And I think Ariel, you talked about it is it's not only that you get the feedback, it's that you do something with it. I think (laughs) that's the part that always kind of, um, I, I, I'm not really sure what's worse. Is it worse to get a survey and do nothing with the feedback or never have surveyed? I don't, I don't know. I kind of like, I gotta think about that because I feel like as an employee, I am so much more frustrated if you asked for my feedback and then you chose to do absolutely nothing with it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think though, Ariel, I talked about this yesterday a little bit. One of the places I think that we miss in leadership development often, we spend a lot of time on giving feedback. I don't know that we spend as much time as we need to on receiving feedback because that's hard. Like we don't want to hear hard things about ourselves and even things that we fundamentally might disagree with. And for the person who shared those things that they have some things that they that's their reality. My reality might be different, but I mean, I think about a time when I got really hard feedback from some supervisees and I'm so mad after. Um, But I did have to sit back and go, what about what they said is real for them? And what does that mean about who I am and how, or not even who I am, let's not personalize it that far, but how I'm leading right now that isn't meeting some needs or some things that are important to them. So I think that's another place where if we're gonna really have a psychologically safe environment. It also means that our leaders are able to receive feedback, even when they don't like it, even if they don't agree with it, but in a way that still contributes to that psychological safety and continues to promote that feedback culture and that feedback loop. That's like having an openness to openness to receiving and hearing and considering. So, and it's like, curiosity instead of immediate reactivity. And, you know, honestly, I think when we have, when people have trauma or they have had difficult experiences, we, we can tend to get defensive about certain things. So I think that's one of the best ways that leaders can make a positive difference when it comes to receiving feedback is to really pay attention to what is triggering you. What, um, where am I getting defensive? Um, and, and not to say that it's like right or wrong. It's just curious and there's something to learn here. And so I think I I really appreciate that. 
I also think in terms of feedback, like when you're receiving feedback or when you're asking, you know, other people for feedback um, or giving feedback to, to others in your organization, and then not just receiving it and reading it and digesting it, but then also sharing with your team how it's going to be implemented. I think a lot of times it's like, I'll get a survey from my organization, I'll fill it out. And yeah, maybe they're on the back end, they're working hard to implement these things, but they never tell me how they're implementing them. So I think Mm -hmm. really communicating that is important too. That is so true, Emily, because my first, one of my first professional jobs, um, they sent out a survey and I was like, oh, right on, you know, and we all had this great conversation. It was, you know, like they flip charted it and we were all in the room together and everything. I was so excited and so energized. Not one word crickets about what we said, about how they were going to do anything with it. And we truly never saw any effect. So I was so discouraged after that, that I'm like, I kind of lost faith in the fact that they would actually hear what we had to say. I didn't expect them to do everything that we were recommending, but really to take it seriously and to then communicate with us as to what, you know, what could they do? What were they working on? Like you said, Emily, it's just that that communication is so, so important, which leads me to the next question, because I think both of you at during the webinar had spoken about authentic communication in crisis, being real, being transparent, um, being willing to be vulnerable. Um, And there's definitely nuances to that um, because it can be done well and it can be done not so well. Um, So I'm just curious from your two, both of your experiences, um, you know, what would you say about the nuances of that kind of communication we're talking about in crisis, um, whether it's in a psychologically unsafe environment or we're in the middle of an emergency? Um, So how about we start with Ariel? Would you begin? Yeah, I mean, that's so hard, right? Because in any of these sort of conversations, we're taking like an interpersonal risk, right? We're taking a risk by by talking about something that's going on and trying to be vulnerable and having those hard conversations. Um, and so when you're taking that risk, you know, everyone is afraid of judgment, right? Everybody wants to look good. You know, you want to look good to your boss and your boss wants to look good to their boss, right? So <laughs> we're all in this, you know, sort of vicious cycle of, you know, wanting to look good and not wanting to, you know, be vulnerable because it hasn't really ever been fostered or, or we're afraid, you know, we're afraid just because you're my boss, you know, I can't be vulnerable because I have this idea of authority in my head and what that looks like. And so, um, you know, for me, it's, it's just really breaking down those barriers and, and making sure that, you know, that everybody's human, we all make mistakes, you know, no one's perfect. There is no manual for it. Um, and so just being able to, to have that candid conversation, um, and take the risk to have that con- candid conversation. Yeah, there it is, that risk-taking and modeling the risk-taking, yeah. Jill, what are your thoughts? Yeah, you know, as you asked that, it it really brought me back to my days doing that crisis response, right? So some of those phone calls that I had to make in the middle of the night to parents to tell them that their kiddo was, you know, their student, they weren't a kid, but their student whose first time away from home is in the hospital right now, right? So when I think about what I would go through before I had to make those calls. It was what, what's all the information that I have right now? What do I know for sure? Um, 
where can I, where the parents are going to want more information. I'm, I'm kind of the relayer of the message. So where's the next place? How can I make sure they have a phone number, the doc, the name of a doctor to get to, um, who has laid eyes on their student, right? As a parent myself, I want to know that somebody has seen my kid and they are there, right. And they are okay. And, um, as okay as they can be. And they're in the safest place they can be. So when I had to call a parent at 2.30 in the morning, right? Nothing, nobody calls at 2.30 in the morning to tell you good news usually, yeah. right? And so it was this, you know, thinking about not only the information, but how I said it. So was my voice calm? Was my rate calm? Did they know who I was? Could I introduce myself quickly? Because really this isn't about me. It's here's who I am. I'm calling from here. I want to let you know that your son or daughter is okay. That was the first thing they needed to know. That person is okay. Here's what I know has happened. Here's the number to the hospital where you can get more information. Here's my number if you need anything else, right? done. They, they didn't want more from me. They needed to know the next step. So I think it was thinking about, you know, what's the information I need to convey? And it's, and I want to say that it's how you're conveying it, right? Those, that, that authenticity really is a lot of times in the nonverbal. So when we talk about communication, you know, they say that, you know, 85 to 95% of communication isn't at all what we're saying. It's how we're saying it. So it's rate, tone, pitch, you know, all of those other things, where you pause, where you might him or haw, what that looks like. So I think authenticity is really thinking about who's your audience? What do they need to know right now? How can I convey that in a way that's going to be most helpful? It's also acknowledging what you don't know. You know, even in a big organization to be able to say, I don't have the answer for that yet. And here are the ways we're going to go about trying to get that answer for you. Um, so I think that's a lot of the authenticity. And it really is, you know, I think Ariel said it at either in this podcast or the end of the webinar, we're humans being human, right? I can I can tell you about one of the, the biggest authentic communication mistakes I made, which was early in my career when I was on call, I had to call a parent and, and the information we had students that were by the same name and we didn't get as clear down to like what we thought we was. So I ended up having, I calling a parent and calling the wrong parent in the middle of the night. It was, it was not their student who was in the hospital, right? It was, it was another student with that exact same name. So, you know, I had done all of that communication. Then, then we have this moment where it's like, oh my gosh. So I'm like, I will call them back right now because I, 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 they needed to hear from me, the person who had made the mistake, right? To say, I, I need to apologize. I'm so sorry. It is not your student who is here. You know, and the parent was like, oh man, we've got eight kids. We always knew it'd be one of them. I'm like, well, it's not this one, right? So that <laughs> moment of like levity to kind of say like, oh, go back to sleep. I am so sorry. I am so sorry, right? But to acknowledge that too, like when we mess up to make it right and to be authentic in that too. So um, I think it really is that, that, that human, connection and that ability to say like I don't know yet and here's what I'm trying to do and and to think about my who I'm talking to right what would I want to know in that situation what would I want to hear what would be helpful you know if you're thinking about authentic communication in an organization play out the perspectives right if you're trying to create a large message is it where you can put a couple different people around the table and say okay I need you to pretend you're coming from the perspective of our clients or those we serve I need you to be our employees at this level I need you to be the employees at this level here's the message how does that land on you what did we miss right how do we craft that communication in a way that really 
you know, hits all those different audiences or is it not one communication? Is it separate for each one? And what's the timing of that? Right. But I think the authenticity, you know, as an, as a person who's receiving information, I feel like it's authentic. If I feel like they really thought about my needs, about what did I need in that scenario to help me have my stress be reduced for me to feel psychologically safe, to know that those immediate needs are attended to, to know what they want me to do or to not do. Right. So I think it really is that, that practice of that authenticity comes in thinking about who is your audience and what are the questions they're going to have so that you can tune into those and try to answer them. Yes. Yes, absolutely. I really appreciate that you just shared a mistake. (laughs) That was great modeling of we're taking the mask off, just like you said, Ariel, you know, it's like unmasking and being human. And I think that is such an important leadership, living leadership skill to be real and to own your mistakes, own, be willing to own them, be willing to take action. One of the phrases that I love is authentic action. So what's an authentic action that I can take right now that will um, resolve this? Maybe it's something I need to do for myself. Maybe it's a conversation I need to have, but asking ourselves that, I think that is such an important leadership skill that, um, that I think, you know, I can see shifts because I know back in the day about, you know, 25 years ago when I was starting this work, it was very much, uh, you know, don't let them see you sweat it's kind of like keep, keep buttoned up and have it all appear a certain way. And I do see more and more leaders bringing, like you said, Ariel, bringing your whole self to work um, and, and role modeling that for, for their team. Yeah. I mean, it's so important, right. And and Jill touched on a lot of this, but I'll, you know, I'll just kind of say it's, you know, you want to create that environment, right. For, for everybody. So, you know, if you're a leader, you know, realize one, you're human, right. And the other person you're talking to is human too, right. We all make mistakes, but uh, you know, setting, setting up that environment for them as well. So, you know, what can I do to make you comfortable in order for you to kind of, you know, open up that way you see me as human. Um, And then that we can have more of that authentic connection too. So I think that is just so important. Absolutely. I love that, Ariel, what you just said there about how can somebody else see you as human? Because I think, you know, when I think about offices that I might have gone into at various points and there's no personal connection, right? There's no, there's, there's not a family picture. There's not all of these other these things, right. That just make me go like, Oh, there's a human behind this professional. Right. So it can be as little as those things of like, this is my family or my little bobblehead is here. Or, you know, I always loved, I used to study people's bookshelves and I'm like, Oh, tell me about that one. I want, you know, so kind of seeing what's there, but, but if there's nothing there to, to find that connection point, like that, that can feel that would be a hard environment, I think, for me to feel really psychologically safe in. And I say that as somebody that like I'm fairly introverted. I can do presentations. I can do all this. But like my like inside self is like, oh, my gosh, please let somebody else start the conversation here. Like this makes me nervous. Right. So like those things give me a place where I have a little bit more where I feel that safety or that connection in a different way. Yeah. I'm thinking a lot about throughout this this conversation, I'm thinking a lot about employees having like personal crisis moments, like very last minute personal things that go on where they're just kind of like, I need to be gone tomorrow and I'm going to be gone for three days, those sorts of things. And like how leaders can be prepared for those types of scenarios and like really make employees feel safe before they happen. Like, I feel like one thing, like if, if, if I started a new job and an employer, like simply was just like, you know, if anything comes up, 
I want you to, to know that like, you're able to, to trust me and to tell me what's going on. And like, we'll, we'll figure it out. We'll handle it. Like throughout the course of your time with us here at this organization, like just a simple statement like that, I feel like is so often something that employers in positions of leadership just don't have those types of conversations with employees enough. Um, and I think that that can make such a difference, like a one-time statement when you start a job, just to know that they have your back. Mm-hmm. And then to live that, to like live, put that into action. Right. So yeah. I'm going to set this tone. I'm going to be real and I'm going to be, um, you know, committing to this and then I'm going to show you in what I do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, that's, that's where it is. Right. That commitment to it. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, any final burning thoughts that you want to make sure our listeners hear from you about regarding this topic? I think there's, there's just so much here, Mm -hmm. Um, but so much of what I think we have talked about, you know, that has come back to, if we operate with that authenticity before crisis before any of this happened with wellness, with psychological safety, all of those things that we want to be there for our employees in terms of their wellness and, and the resiliency after that foundation's already been set, right? If, if that foundation's there, the crisis is the house on top, you know, we're, the whole yard is done at the end in a really bad metaphor sort of way, right? Because we had that, that solid foundation as we've moved forward and navigated those things. So, so the resiliency and the well-being happen when we've set all these things in place ahead of time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think, you know, with, with all of that, it's, you know, people make up organizations, right. And, and you need people in order to have a sustainable organization. So if you're looking at those people inside, you know, it, let's, let's provide mutual respect. Um, every, every job that is done in that organization from the bottom to the top is important. And if it wasn't important, we wouldn't have that position. Right. So let's provide that mutual respect and foster that environment of that open communication because every job is important and every voice deserves to be heard. Yeah. Now, if every leader on this planet believed that and lived that, that would be awesome. (laughs) But we can all start within ourselves and how we show up to our family members, to our coworkers, to our teams that can make the difference. That does make a difference. It's a ripple. It's a ripple effect. Well, I want to say thank you both for your participation in the webinar today and for the further conversation we just had um, in this podcast episode. We are so thankful to you both. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Yes, good. Well, um, you all can join us and remember to tune in next time for how leaders and organizations can help prevent burnout and retain employees. Such an important topic, especially with how hiring challenges are right now. Nicole Horgan and Scott Dinwiddie will be uh, participating in this conversation webinar, and it will air live on Wednesday, December 15th from 12 to 1 PST. And you can expect to... um, to see this podcast recording uploaded in the following week. Um, so like Emily said, um, around Wednesday or so next week, you'll hear, um, you'll have access to this podcast and then same with each of the following webinars going forward. The podcast will show up about a week later. So lastly, 
We want to definitely thank a huge thank you, actually, to this year's living leadership sponsors, Canopy Credit Union and Avista Utilities. Well, that wraps up today, our episode two in this wonderful series of living leadership. Cannot wait to connect with you all next time.